Hello, welcome to Research Pod. I am Will, and today we're speaking with Professor Robert Brent from Fordham University about his new book on cost-benefit analysis and dementia, and how the philosophical economic frame of cost-benefit analysis can be applied in healthcare. And Professor, thanks very much for your time today. You're welcome. So welcome, everyone. My, my name is Robert Brent. I'm a professor of economics at Fordham University. I was born in London, England, and I did my PhD at the University of Manchester. And that's where I got involved with public policy. I had a public finance course on government expenditure and taxation, and then a public sector economics course, which focused on uh, government ownership, which is in Europe, say, electricity, is uh, owned by the government, whereas in the US it is regulated. So that's the uh, interest that I have, which is the role of the government in the economy. And uh, there should be a public-private partnership. So the government fills in the gaps that the private sector uh, generates. And that's the role. So how does it make those decisions? And the answer is on the basis of cost-benefit analysis. So they compare the uh, costs and benefits, and on the basis of that, they do uh, decisions that makes people better off. Now, the book that we're talking about today is about cost-benefit analysis and dementia, but you've written several other books about cost-benefit analysis across different aspects of life. So if we could start maybe with just a brief summary of how one does cost-benefit analysis in research, kind of the methodology and maybe take it from day-to-day -day life out to, like you say, those policy, those national and international impacts? Well, government expenditure decisions uh, will always have benefits uh, and costs. There are always going to be advantages. And you can't just add the number of advantages and say something has five advantages and two disadvantages, therefore it's worthwhile. The question is, how important are those advantages and how important are the disadvantages. And to do that, you need to measure these out in the outputs in terms of money. So the, uh, the outputs are measured in money, the inputs are measured in money, and then the, the difference between the two can be the net benefits, and that tells you whether you should be doing it. Now, this approach applies to anything, and there are many different ways of putting monetary values. So that's why I wrote these six, seven textbooks, because there are various methods that you can use. For dementia, I use the quality uh, and quantity of life, basically qualities, but I also have cost savings as a measure. But there are many different ways, if you're talking about the environment, how do you put a monetary value on that? For a tree, the climate, uh, education, uh, crime prevention, they're all uh, in interventions that are necessary. Uh, and intuition doesn't get the job done. It, it's not a question of uh, what you think makes sense. It's uh, that it's uh, the data that determines what is appropriate. So um, intuition, so common sense, uh, it, it isn't common. And certainly uh, that's why you need to use data. And cost-benefit analysis is the most useful means of doing this, no matter what the field that you're applying it to, whether it's a developing country or uh, in the US or, or Europe, there's always um, uh, a need to find out what is worthwhile. So to kind of get everyone on the same page of what a cost-benefit analysis is, 
I imagine it's something that you're doing kind of consciously and unconsciously in just your everyday life. And I wonder if you could give a few just basic examples for the listeners and for my own benefit, what a cost-benefit analysis in day-to-day life looks like. And then we can cover some of the uh, bigger topics, some of the healthcare and financial impacts that come up over the course of your books. As you say, everything is a question of costs and benefits. Everything one does, uh, take listen to this uh, video. There are benefits and costs. You could, you could be doing other things with your life. So the question is, is it worthwhile? So that depends on what you hope to learn from uh, the talk and uh, what the costs are. Like say you give up your time. So that's an example of what the cost is. It's, uh, it can be measured in, in time because uh, time is money. So therefore, that's one way of, of looking at it. But basically, you just cross the road to go shopping. You're taking a chance when you cross the road that you could get uh, knocked down, you could lose your life. And now if you thought it was a good chance, then you wouldn't cross the road. But uh, normally, that's what one does. One crosses the road, you look right, you look at left, you look at signs, and then the benefits are that you can then do your shopping and then uh, you can carry on with your life. So everything that you do is a question of, of, of choice. There are options to make, and then you, you do this uh, as a matter of... Uh, of your uh, usual life. That's, that's how you carry on your life. You don't always write it down, the benefits and costs, but you uh, implicitly make that uh, decision every, with almost anything that you do in life. And back to something that you mentioned in your introduction, that you worked in quality of life years and life saved. And I imagine for a lay person listening to this, the idea of putting a numerical value to a life or to any experience of, or to any duration of life is something of an uncomfortable topic. But I suppose it is one of those things that needs doing to really ground healthcare policy in what is economically viable, but also what is personally valuable to anyone. I mean, the statistics about nursing homes are frankly alarming. So if you could tell us a bit more about relating human life and human lifetimes to a dollar value, but also to a a good life, a life well spent in happiness rather than just, well, waiting. Right. So one needs an outcome, which you're going to measure the benefits and costs. You have to put a monetary value on something. In the healthcare field, the most common one is a quality adjusted life year which is what's your life expectancy and then what's your quality of life while you're living. So are you living in a nursing home that, uh, or are you in a wheelchair? So your quality of life may be uh, reduced, uh, but that's one factor. But also there is the, are you going to live longer? So it's the quantity and quality of life. And everything that takes place affects your quantity and quality of life. Even this video could, could increase the quality of your life. So, um, so it's very, very general. So uh, what you need to do is put a monetary value on that. So what I did was use the value of a statistical life literature. And basically it was about a half a million dollars for each quality that you generate from your intervention. Uh, and so where does that come from? It's not, you know... Economists are not trying to play God. They can't put money on life per se. It's a statistical life, which is the chances of you losing your life. 
Okay, so think of a coal miner. Okay, so why would they go down the coal mine uh, and there's, uh, say, one in a thousand chance that they would die? Why would they do that? Because the answer is they would get more compensation. So they actually make this trade-off between uh, their losing their life. But it's not for certain, it's the probability. That's what makes it a statistical lie. So if there's a one in a thousand chance that you will lose your life and you get an extra thousand dollars, an economist would value that at one million dollars. So 1,000 times 1,000 is $1 million. So it's not a life for certain, it's a statistical life. And many government uh, policies, you don't know if you're going to have a rail service or a plane that somebody is going to die, but some people will die. But it's uh, uh, just on average, there's an expectation. But if there are a lot of people traveling, there are a lot of people with benefits. So that's uh, how you try. So that's one of the main uh, methods I used for uh, dementia interventions was this putting a value on a quality of life. But there's also the, uh, for other interventions in, in the book, I cover cost savings, right? So people have to look after people with uh, dementia. So if, you, if, if they don't have dementia, you can get on with your life. So you can uh, earn or uh, have quality or quantity of life. So there are these various benefits. And as I say, there are many ways of valuing it, uh, um, any government outcome, but the quality-adjusted quality life is a very useful one for healthcare. Now, this isn't the first publication you've made connecting cost-benefit analysis and healthcare. Uh, could you tell us a bit about your work in HIV-AIDS and some of the work that you were performing in Tanzania as part of your Fulbright Award? So HIV-AIDS is a very good example of an area where common sense doesn't get the job done. So the common sense with HIV-AIDS uh, is certainly in Tanzania, where it was 8% of the population had HIV-AIDS. In the US, it's about half a percent, but it's 8%. So you would think that if people had unprotected uh, sex, they would lose their life. So you thought, uh, common sense tells you everyone's going to use condoms. The government doesn't need to be, be involved. All you can do is leave it to people's choices. They'll buy uh, condoms. So what do the data say? At the end of uh, 2000, the same number of condoms were purchased as 10 years earlier when uh, HIV AIDS wasn't so prevalent. So the point is... Uh, you couldn't leave it to uh, individual choice. The government had to get involved. So what did they do? They gave a subsidy on condoms. There was a condom social mar marketing program, and I estimated the benefits and costs of that. So people um, responded to this uh, subsidy. You only paid about a third of the price of uh, condoms. The rest was subsidized, and therefore... Uh, people uh, started using uh, condoms. So that's an example of uh, an intervention that uh, uh, was based on data that if you used on common sense, uh, you just wouldn't do it. You think, well, no one's going to take the chance of losing their life just to have unprotected sex. Uh, so the government's not necessary in this case. But it turns out it was. And there are many uh, examples like that. Um, when you think of education, uh, educated women were more likely to have HIV, not less likely. So you think, oh, oh, what's going on? That doesn't make any sense. 
So you had to look at the data and find out that they were more trusting than their partners. That's why they're less likely to use condoms. But like I say, common sense wouldn't get you there. It's the data that tells you that. So you need to analyze that. So that's a, a very good uh, example uh, of the usefulness of cost-benefit analysis. There's more market failure in developing countries. So that was one of the attractions that took me to Africa on that Fulbright to analyze HIV uh, AIDS in, in, in Africa. And you've been writing more recently about mental health rather than the kind of visible illnesses such as HIV and AIDS. So what led to that transition? Why write about dementia and why now in your research? So I started off with uh, HIV AIDS and I was on a UN AIDS committee and someone su suggested ah, that they knew someone, the AIDS Community Research Initiative of America that does uh, HIV uh, research related to New York. Uh, and they had the largest data set uh, in the world. So they told me to get involved with them. And they specialized uh, not just on uh, HIV AIDS, but they had uh, older adults. And uh, older adults uh, are more vulnerable. M many of the new cases of HIV are, are for older adults. So that's what got me started with uh, older adults. And then again, another UN uh, committee when they talk about uh, aging, they talk about uh, dementia. So I then connected the, the dots and said, you know, that um, perhaps that's a, a useful area to work on is, is um, old adults, not just with HIV, but with uh, dementia. So uh, dementia is mental. I worked on previously on mental health in terms of deinstitutionalization of, of hospitals when they had uh, medications that uh, treated uh, mental problems. People um, no longer had to go to a mental, uh, to a psychiatric hospital. They could go out in, in the community. And again, is that worthwhile? The benefits greater than the cost. Can people look after themselves? Will they take their medicines? So you actually had to, again, to look at, uh, at the data. I've touched on something there that comes up in the book, the idea of old interventions versus new interventions. So if we could explore some more of what those interventions are and some of the options that have been available and should be available to people affected by dementia. The old uh, interventions were basically pharmaceutical. So the Food and Drug Administration authorized various medicines to be uh, used for treating dementia. And it turns out that they only had short-term effects and they weren't generally useful. So they were the old interventions. And then there was the other older interventions, which many people knew about, that was non-pharmaceutical, and that was uh, sleep patterns, uh, diet, and exercise. So people knew about those. They weren't subject to a cost-benefit analysis, but people knew that. So that's got me uh, started, and I started off with a very uh, basic one, which is education helps everything. It, it, it ends up lowering HIV AIDS, but it lowers crime. There are many different advantages. So I, I thought I'd start off with something safe, which is how education. And I found out that it was actually very worthwhile. It really reduced it, uh, symptoms. And you didn't need to have 18 years of education. You could just have uh, one, two, three, four, five years, and you get a very large reduction in, in dementia. 
and could I trouble you for a sneak peek, some of the content, some of the proposals that are in this book? What kind of topics are we covering? You've mentioned education already. Are there any other topics that you think is of interest or might lure people in to read more about? Well, basically, there's nine chapters. Um, and the introduction talks about uh, what is dementia. And the second chapter talks about the data, how I analyze things. In my data set, I was fortunate to have a very large one, National Alzheimer's Coordinating Center gave me a very large national data, data set with uh, hundreds of variables. So once I looked at education, I thought I'd try other variables in the data set. And I had hearing aids. It turns out that hearing aids reduced uh, uh, dementia and then vision correction. So I had that and I knew their age. So I knew if they were eligible for Medicare uh, or not. And I also knew the, uh, whether they were living in a nursing home. I knew the day when they uh, died, so I knew where they died in a nursing home or outside of a nursing home. So these were the interventions that I looked at, the hearing aids, the vision correction, uh, Medicaid uh, eligibility, education, and avoiding living in nursing homes. Because nursing homes take away 3.4 years of your life. Your, life, uh, your quality of life is reduced by 2% each year, and you actually increase the symptoms of, de of dementia by three points on the scale of 18. So that's something to be avoided. So these are the new interventions which I subjected to cost-benefit analysis and found out that they were very worthwhile. So that's the point. We now have hope. When we take the uh, medical field, we think there's nothing that can be done, so no main breakthrough has taken place. We haven't been able to change brain pathology. But that's not what we should be looking at. What we should be looking at is does it affect people's activities of daily living? If they can carry on with their daily living, even though they have the, the brain pathology of uh, dementia or, say, Alzheimer's, tau tangles and fibers, even if they have that, but they can carry on with their activities of uh, daily living, where they can read my book or they can talk to people, carry on with, with their life, then it doesn't matter that they have these tau tangles and fibers. Likewise, what does it mean to say that if someone um, doesn't uh, have this brain pathology, but yet they can't carry on with their life, they can't carry on with the conversation, they can't uh, look after themselves, what does it mean to say that they don't have dementia? So the point is, the criterion is, does it interfere with activities of daily living? And that's what my measure is. I looked at, could they make decisions? I looked at orientation, memory. Do they have a social activities? Do they have hobbies? Could they look after themselves? So that was my measure. If that can carry on, then we can do something about dementia. But once that was, was set, I tried to make it much wider uh, than those areas. There's um, elder abuse. Uh, I'm a member of the uh, International Network for Prevention of Elder Abuse. I'm a representative at the UN, so I, I'm very much aware of that. And that's how you can stop. That's one way. Another way of preventing dementia is, uh, 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 is, uh, is if you reduce elder abuse. So, if there's, so that's an intervention. And then I end up with uh, a human rights uh, issues, which is the um, United Nations have a convention that says that uh, older adults, uh, anyone with uh, a disability, should have 
rehabilitation. Now, uh, dementia is an invisible disability, so that really applies. And it turns out that there is, in fact, an intervention for people who have dementia, which is, again, it focuses on the activities of daily living. If you are a caregiver, right, so what do you get out of it? The answer is, uh, if there's cognitive rehabilitation, they train the, the person with dementia to do a specific task, say walk around the block. So if they walk around the block, the caregiver doesn't have to look up, they can get on with their life a little bit, so if they can do that. But then the person with dementia might be worried that they have to use a phone, say they fall out, uh, over or they forget where they are, they want to use their phone. So co this cognitive rehabilitation spends time on training them how to use that uh, phone for that specific purpose. So it goes over again and again. So it goes with the caregiver. And this way, it's uh, an intervention that helps the caregivers. And it also is one that it promotes human rights. So not only is reducing dementia a worthwhile activity, it's actually something that, that is a, a, a promotion and increase in people's human rights. So that's the last chapter, and that rounds off the book. So to take all of those proposals, all of those frameworks, all of those interventions and analyses that you've mentioned and put them all together, what is something that anyone watching this video, listening to this podcast could take from your research, take from this discussion and take from your book about how to improve the possible benefits in their life, how to reduce the risks, reduce the costs and hopefully have a better, securer, or more fruitful way of going about their lives. Take two examples from my book. Take hearing aids. Now, this is uh, obviously very valuable that if, you, if you can hear things, but it does actually have uh, benefits in terms of dementia. If you can hear other people, you, then you can interact with, with people. So you're not going to be so isolated. And if you're isolated, you're in your own mind, and that's when your own thoughts, and that's where your thought patterns can be affected. So something like a hearing aid, you don't think of it necessarily as a, a big intervention for dementia, but it turns out that we have very large benefits. And think about glasses too. Now, uh, when you have glasses, you're much less, if you're an older adult, you're much likely, less likely to fall less late to die uh, in a vehicle, uh, that, that's uh, very valuable. But it also, again, reduces dementia. If you can uh, see, I can, you can accompany other people, you can go to uh, movies, you can share experiences with them, and you're going to be less isolated. So um, isolation is a very important ingredient. It's one of the six components that, that I have for measuring dementia symptoms. And that's uh, very examples that you can do without actually government involvement. You can do it uh, on your own. You can buy glasses and you can uh, check out and you can get your hearing uh, checked and you can recommend it to others that they, they do that. So they will have much more uh, uh, better quality of life. And if anyone wants to know more about your work, your research and find this book on cost benefit analysis and dementia, where can they go to find that? Well, the book is published by Edward Elgar uh, in the UK, so they have a website and you can, you can purchase it from them. 
but generally you can get it in the US from Amazon, or if you want to have an e-book, you, you can buy that from Google Books, and it's available now uh, in the US and, and in the UK and all around the world. Great. Well, Professor Brent, thank you so much for your time, and uh, we'll see you again soon. Okay. Thank you.